welcome to Season 1, Episode 8 of Speak Up Please. I'm your host, Martin Lovell, and this is Daniel's story. I hope you enjoy. How are you feeling with all the COVID-19 situation? How is it affecting you so far? Um, I'm look. It's 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 a it's a bit of column A and a bit of column B. So if I if I look at what's going well, everyone around me is safe and healthy. Mm-hmm. I'm safe and healthy for now. You know, mm-hmm. you can never tell, right? Um, yeah. I've got some work. Um, certainly, it's affected me work wise, but um, I've got got some work. I can do that work from home. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I think that should that should hold me out for the next couple of months. I imagine, okay. um, but you know, on the other side, um, you know, it's it's uh, some some days it's hard to sleep. Like I find that mm-hmm. I can sometimes be a little bit not not um, not not overtly anxious, but I just kind of feel a bit hyper vigilant. So I'm kind of trying to get a, a good sleep pattern, and yeah. um, I'm hoping that some of the work, like my work, is predominantly going out and, and working with people directly. So um, I, in an LGBTIQ sense, so I'm looking forward to, you know, um, in a couple of months' time, being able to do that because I'm I'm missing um, jumping in the car and driving to to country towns. Basically, mm. I'm a bit I'm a bit like you in that I'm a I'm an introvert, so um, I was built for times like this. But even I'm feeling it, you know. Like I, I you know, I, I still there, there are certain things that I miss, but um, mm. I think that I'm I'm doing a lot better than some of my friends that thrive on on contact with human beings. Um, mm. yeah. Whereas I don't in the same way. So I, I I'm I feel grateful that I'm an introvert. Uh, my name is Daniel Whithouse. Uh, my pronouns are he, him, and his, and I'm the CEO and founder of Niche Australia. So that's a small rural LGBTIQ charity. Mm-hmm. Um, we partner with LGBTIQ people and rural communities to, to make those places safer and more supportive of LGBTIQ people. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm also an author, I'm currently working on my third book, but um, have, have really enjoyed um, writing over the years. How did you come into writing and what? sort of inspires you to write uh, your books that you've produced so far? Well, well f- uh, funny story that I always swore that I would never I would never write a book. I, mm. <laughs> I didn't think that I was a writer. Um, okay. One of the things that I got told early on was that I'm a storyteller. Mm-hmm. So I love to collect stories and I love to tell stories. So I had a really fantastic mentor. So I was I was working in schools in my hometown of Geelong. Mm-hmm. I was challenging homophobia. Um, it, I was working at an all-boys Catholic school and a mentor said to me, what you're doing, this is in the late 1990s, mm-hmm. he said, what you're doing is probably a world first, so can you do me a favour? And every time you leave that school, can you go and write everything down that happened, everything you saw, everything that they said, everything that you said, because I think that will be valuable at some stage. Okay. And then after I finished that work, um, I, um, I I kept on getting asked questions about how did you get into Catholic schools? How did the 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 boys in the all boys school react? And I I just thought, oh, I, I need to tell this story. Mm-hmm. And the more that I told that story, the more people said you should make a book. Okay. Um, and the people who said that were teachers who said we want you to teach us and tell us how we can work with our students better. And and that was how my first book was born, which was uh, Beyond That So Gay. Yeah. Um, I, I I then I then had a chance to write my second book, which, which was about my rural LGBTIQ work. Um, and again, as I was doing that work, I made sure that I wrote everything down. And I think that that would be what I'd say to anybody um, is that it's, it's, it's not about something you necessarily make up. It's just about writing down 
you know, the things that you see and hear um, and then weaving some kind of a story. So I just, I was just lucky that I had a, a very wise mentor and I was probably lucky enough that I listened to him. Yeah, definitely. So I guess I was born in the 90s and, you know, that was sort of my time frame of, I guess, the LGBT community wasn't really socially acceptable back then. So what was it like for you when you were growing up in terms of, you know, discovering your sexuality and sort of realising who you were at the time? Yeah, so so I, I went through primary schools in the 80s and then I went through high school in the, the 90s. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I, I grew up in a working-class uh, part of Geelong uh, in regional Victoria. Um it was not a um, it was not a place that was accepting of anything that was different um, than being heterosexual um, at that stage. Um, I, I I must admit that that whilst primary school was was um, a really good time for me, high school was a very very scary place for me. Okay. So I was very very um, anxious and fearful about spending um, time outside of classrooms. So I was bullied quite a bit. Mm. Um, and I don't think my story of, of bullying in schools is different to other gay men, you know, through the 1990s. Um, but, yeah, it really took its toll on me. I loved school, but I didn't love the bullying and it was constant. Mm. Um, and I guess I guess for me, um, I, I felt like I, when I left high school, I felt like I could breathe for the first time. Yeah, um, sure. There weren't examples of um, local gay men. So there were there were bits and pieces in the media and you could hear stories, but they were never from my area. They were never people my age. Mm. There were never things that I could really relate to. Mm. It was always somewhere else in the world. And 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 so I found it really, really hard to connect to until until I, I basically um, you know turned 18, 19 and got into university. Okay. Um, yeah, I guess that brings me to my next question. Did you have any sort of, uh, I guess, idols or inspirational people that you looked up to during that time or sort of, say, discovering your sexuality and pre-coming out who you, you know, looked up to? Um, Look, what what I'll say is that um, I I don't want to be too kind of um, um, dark and morbid here, but I I really didn't have anyone to look up to until I left high school. Mm -hmm. Um, um, Certainly there were people I admired, but but like I said, there was was no one really um, gay that I knew about that I I would look up to. I I really wish that there were some some visible and and people, you know, people who I could look to. But but the people I looked up to when I left high school Mm -hmm. Was I met um, some lesbian women in Geelong who were doing some really great work in supporting gay and lesbian young people back then. That was when the BITQ didn't ex- didn't exist. It yeah, was just uh, yeah. lesbian and gay. Okay. Um, and and the way that they worked and the way that they brought me, you know, um, um, into a project that they were working on. That's how I got started in this work. I volunteered in a, a gay and lesbian youth project, um, and I just really looked up to them and the way that they went about their lives and and they 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 gave me hope that there was um there was a, they gave me for the first time in my life this hope that I could have a great life being a young gay man mm. up until that stage I think I, I pretty much thought it would be doom and gloom in the closet. I would lose all my family and friends. Um, I was just so worried about what would happen if people found out. Yeah. And through watching them live their lives, I just got this sense that I could have a positive life and I could also make a contribution to the world. And that was the first time in my life I ever felt that. So I'm, I'm so grateful for meeting them in my, my late teenage years and my early 20s. Mm. Yeah, that's, uh, I mean, I pretty much had a similar experience. And I think we, you know, as 
we sort of discover our sexuality, we kind of feel that sort of fear and judgment, you know, growing up that people might not like you for being who you are. But I think it's just a time thing, you know, dealing with it as you grow up and, you know, you realise that your sexuality doesn't really mean anything to anyone else but yourself. And and I and I really I, I, I still find this um, this this kind of strange in some way is that when I was growing up um, I've got a lot of friends who hated the fact that they were gay and they 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 loathed that part of themselves whereas I, I don't know why mm-hmm. I was I, I never hated myself I always felt it was a natural part of me yeah um, I, no one ever told me that I never saw that anywhere I never read that but I thought. This is who I am and it's just naturally me. My, my issue was not being gay. My issue was with how the rest of the world was going to respond to it. So mm. so I can't imagine, um, I think I was lucky I didn't grow up in a religious kind of household. Mm. I don't know how I would have how I would have gone if I had a, you know, been, <laughs> been growing up in a place where people told me it was a sin or whatever that was. So yeah. I, I, I just feel so lucky. I, again, I don't know the reason why, but I didn't, I didn't hate um, being gay. It was just the response that the world had to it. Yeah, definitely. And I think I, said, I share the same experience with you on that front. Um, do you feel that sort of growing up within the 80s, I feel 80s and the 90s are kind of similar in that time frame. Um, do you feel that it was more particularly religious back then than what it is now? Oh, I just, uh, what, what, what I do think is that um, I think that that um, God came more quickly into the conversation and religion came more quickly into the conversation when it came about um, gay people. I mean, I also um, grew up at the time where the the Grim Reaper HIV ad, um, ads, you know, were coming on the TV. I remember that was when I was in grade six in year seven. Okay. Um, and I, you know, there was always um, HIV, um, you know, was was in the background. And I guess that really came to the fore for me in high school in the 1990s. Um, um, so, so I would say that probably the, the bigger issue was that there was limited information and there probably were the... Um, religion was one of the main arguments that, that you could basically wheel out very, very quickly yeah. and silence a conversation and shame a whole lot of people. And, and I, I, I would say that that's different to how it is now. Yeah, definitely. Do you feel more sort of anxious or overwhelmed in regards to what's going on around you or how do you sort of deal with those feelings as they happen? Kind of, just um, in like more of a general side of things. Oh, I had a, a very anxious uh, anxious time in my teenage years and my high school years, and it probably took me my entire twenties. Uh, I mean, into my early thirties before I got a handle on how to deal with my anxious energy mm-hmm. and how to deal with, um, you know, how I could how I could calm myself down and get really, really focused. So, so I, at this stage, what I find is that what, what works for me is that that um, yes, I am yes, I am anxious. Um, with COVID-19 and, and why am I anxious? I'm anxious because um, I've got a lot of friends and family who are high-risk groups. Okay. Um, I'm less worried about myself and I'm probably more more worried about if I was to, to, to get it and pass it on, if I was asymptomatic or mild symptoms. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm... I'm um, what's working for me to keep me calm is I'm, I'm trying to, to go back to basics. So things like, um, you know, the first week, I think I was like a lot of, a lot of other people. I just stared at walls and I spent the whole time watching the ABC news and I was always on my phone and looking at social media. And I just found the first week really, really exhausting. Mm-hmm. 
And so once I once I kind of caught it, I, I um I, I tried to to go back to basics and, and sleep a lot, um, drink lots of water, all the boring stuff. Make sure I exercise every morning. Just do something. Go for a walk once a day. Yeah. Turn off the ABC. Um, limit my my use of social media. Try and do some other things. Now, now has it that doesn't mean that everything's going great. No, but it just means that I've I've actually calmed myself. Yeah. Um, and and where I'm at at the moment is just focusing on, on what what I can control. Yeah. So what can I control? Some days that's not much. Sometimes that's just what time you go to bed and how much water intake you've got, or whether or not you can kind of cook a decent meal. And and yeah. and um, I'm just trying to be really um, humble about that because I know that that's going to change. So as this lifts, you know, I, I, I'm really concerned myself is that in my work with LGBTIQ people, but also my family and friends, is that. If this impacts on people in terms of, you know, jobs and identity and all the rest of it, I think it's a world we're going to have to be a lot more kinder, mm. we're going to have to be more generous and we're going to have to be more patient. So I'm stealing myself for months and months, six to 12 months in advance mm. where we're just going to have to um, be bigger, better people yeah. to basically, um, you know, help, help the people around us. So mm. I, I guess that helps me focus um, a little bit beyond me feeling um, upset that I can't go and play tennis with my friends or go and sit in a cafe. Yeah, sure. Well, I think, you know, that's a good message and that, that's a good point to bring up is, you know, I find, especially just going to the supermarket, for instance, you know, people are a lot more, I guess, not nicer, they're just more sort of aware about what's going on and, you know, you notice that a lot more people are smiling at you now, whereas before they would, probably would have just ignored you. Because we we had the the bushfires here in Victoria, that, you know, that was in New South Wales and the ACT too, and you know um, some some floods and hurricanes in Queensland, and I think um, um, it's similar in the way in that um, you know when 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 stressful situations happen and people are kind of you know forced back to basics and it's really you know like people are in danger and there's so much risk and we know that there are lives lost and we know that you know all of that's happening. Like I I just um, I, I'm really um, from an LGBTIQ perspective, I, I think about how it intensifies the behaviours. So, you know, if I think about rural communities, um, you know, under that kind of stress in communities, you know, that that that's likely that homophobia and transphobia and biphobia and intersex phobia are going to increase. Mm-hmm. Um, not that they're going to go away because we're all mates and we're all in this together because we're Australian. Mm-hmm. I just think about when people are under stress, how do they react? And sometimes that means that, um, you know, if, if people are generally good, perhaps they're more good. And if people are generally bad, then they're going to be more bad. And so I think um, how we... Um, how we make sure that people are more generous, kind and patient with each other is um, is going to be um, a big decider in how we all get to the other side of this. Yeah, definitely. Um, so let's go back to uh, what you do in terms of writing and your books and things like that. Uh, so in terms of, uh, I think, Beyond Priscilla, is that your latest book that you've come out with? Yeah, so Beyond, yeah, Beyond Priscilla is about my rural. LGBTIQ work, yes. Yep. Do you want to sort of branch on that a bit more, just for people who might not know what it's about? Of course, of course. Look, I, um, I, I'd love everyone to to read it. Of course. <laughs> um, look, I was lucky enough. I in two thousand and ten, I jumped in my open the gay truck called Bruce, and we drove around Australia for two hundred and sixty six days. We went to every single state and territory. We focused on rural and regional um, Australia, or rural, regional, and remote, mm-hmm. and we looked at what everyday LGBTIQ um, life was like. 
So I interviewed hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people. Um, my focus was to challenge homophobia one cover at a time and just to collect all of those stories. But mm. but not only was I talking to LGBTIQ people in all of these places, um, um, I was also talking to mainstream people, so police, teachers, doctors, um, counsellors, um, basically anyone who I could speak to in these towns. And and what I wanted to do was rather than me come into a town and go, all right, I'm going to drive into Broken Hill and decide, you know, whether or not it's um, LGBTIQ friendly or not, I wanted I wanted those people to, to tell me themselves. So what I did was I got a snapshot of all these different people from across the community who would tell me what life was like. Now, you can imagine that, you know, 266 days of that, there would be some patterns and themes to that. So when I got back to uh, Melbourne, um, what I decided to do was I needed to share all the things that I'd heard and what I'd learned. So rather than just being, you know, one gay man in the truck and then I kind of go, that was nice and that was it, um, I felt a great responsibility, you know, responsibility to share those stories. So I was blogging at the time. I was doing radio interviews. Um, I was doing videos um, in order to share those stories and what some of the things were. And and then the idea was, you know, like with my first book, um, if I write all of this down as I go, then I can turn it into a book. So mm. I really wanted to share the stories. And I, I think I think the feedback I got when I when I released the book was was that. You know, people people said that it was the first time that they'd actually read their own story reflected back at them. So they said, oh. you know, we, we usually read read a whole lot of stories from, you know, people in Sydney and Melbourne and Brisbane, but we never hear about what it's like in the country towns. Yeah. Um, so, so so that was important to me. And and I guess that's that's the reason why I became clearer about starting my my charity, my little LGBTIQ charity niche. Mm-hmm. Um, the reason being that um, you know a lot of LGBTIQ projects are uh, metropolitan focused. You know they're 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 basically in the big smoke, okay. um, and they may or may not do some work in regional and rural areas. And I was really really clear that, that um, there are a whole bunch of things that we could do in regional, rural, and remote Australia that wasn't being done at the moment, mm-hmm. and therefore it needed to be national rather than being focused on those big smoke cities because, you know, in the past rural communities will say is that um, they're, they're sometimes forgotten by the big smoke and I wanted to, to make them the focus rather than the afterthought. Yeah, definitely. Do you feel that we're more accepting as um, a broader LGBT community, say now, than we were I don't know, maybe 10, 15 years before? I'm probably not the best person to ask because I'm I'm a I'm a white gay cisgender man. So mm-hmm. I like, you know, I, I I think I I'd be I'd be cautious to say, you know, how it is. But it, if I think about um are there more people from, you know, like the trans and gender diverse community? Are there more bi people? Are there more queer people of colour? Are there more intersex advocates? You know, are, are there more people who are neurodiverse who are speaking up? Um, people living with a disability, like there have never been more voices and individuals involved. Um, if I listen to them and what they tell me, like the, the ones that I've spoken to, they'll say that we've made some great, you know, we've made a great start and there are so many different voices and stories that are being shared. But what that, you know, I think the people who I speak to would say is that um, we've made a good start, but we've got a long way to go. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, and, and, and I think myself, you know, so, so as an example, um, as a white gay cis man, I think it's, you know, my responsibility to, you know, um, leverage my privilege, use my privilege to to try and help out. So what's, what's, a, what's an example of that? You know, it's nice to say, but what's an example of that is that 
that last year I was asked to help out with a rural trans and gender diverse project. So that was was uh, me going in and sharing my my skills and being an ally and a mentor um, because you know through an invitation from them okay. and helping them you know come up with what what you know what's their strategy, what are their actions, what is it that they want. Um, they're the kinds of things that I think we need to do more of rather than it being a, um, a situation where we know in the past that white gay cis men have. Um, basically um, not created room for, you know, queer people of colour and all those other groups, that, you know, and more that I've described already. So yeah. so I think I think there's never been a better time to be LGBTIQ in this country mm-hmm. from a whole range of, um, you know, different what, 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 you know, some people sometimes call the intersections. But I, I think... Um, I think we, you know, we're like the rest of the world. I think uh, we need to we need to really work on listening to each other. Mm-hmm. And when we listen to each other um, and really hear what's going on, then hopefully we can better understand and then we can work out why the bloody hell we're all under this rainbow uh, umbrella together mm-hmm. and how we might, we might um, make that work for everybody, not just, you know, certain groups. Yeah, definitely. And I would say that you're sort of, involvement in the community is more just about creating conversation amongst the general people instead of you know the broad spectrum more just anyone and everyone in the um, spectrum of the rainbow you know it's just getting that conversation out there and you know getting them involved in the communities well not just yourself yeah, one of the one of the things is that that um you know some people um you know used to describe me as you know um, gay Superman or doing something special like some kind of rural hero or whatever it is and what it's, and, and I'd say just just look at what I'm actually doing what am I actually doing mm-hmm. um, people people think that I do something magical and it's not what I do is I go out and I I create space and I listen to people so 80% of the time whether I'm talking with a homophobic person or whether I'm talking with you know um, incredible LGBTIQ folk regardless of who I speak to 80% of the time I'm listening Mm-hmm. And I'm asking questions, and I'm seeking to understand. And I, I, I really, um, one of the one of the the most incredible things I hear from rural people is, um, you know, they'll say, you know, um, they they tell me in 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 you know different words to this, but they'll basically say, we never get a chance to tell our story. We don't really get a chance to be listened to and heard. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, you know, and and it's such a simple thing, but it seems so hard for us all to do. So again, I, I work really, really hard to listen to people because, um, you know, I think there's not enough of it in this uh, yeah. great. So in terms of the plebiscite, I know for me it was quite difficult, negatively affected by it, just in terms of my mental health and you know the whole situation that played out. <laughs> um, do you feel that the community has changed since the plebiscite, and what was your thought process throughout the whole? situation so the so the 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 marriage equality postal survey um was something that um, took an incredible toll on the lgbtiq community we um we know that it impacted on them we know that there's some research evidence not enough on this um we know that it impacted on people's mental health and well-being um we know that we lost people um throughout that postal survey period we um we know that there's still that hangover from that we still know that people are still being impacted to this day Mm. uh, because of the postal survey so so um during during that time it was it was very very stressful but I spent the six weeks leading up to the postal survey um, result driving around regional communities. So in um, in that six weeks, I went and basically just sat and listened to people and said, 
what's going on for you, what's come up for you. And 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 really what it, it led to was um, you know, some changes that will never be um never be undone. So for example, I know people who said this was the line in the sand, and as a result of this, um, you know, I I will never speak to certain family and friends again. Mm-hmm. You know, at the same time, we you know, people will, will say, yeah, but we, we we got the yes vote, and there were all of these people stepping up. That was great, but at what expense? You know, mm-hmm. we we know that it was unnecessary. Um, yeah. What I would say is that it was inc- if if there was one thing that I could take as a positive, um, we saw a whole bunch of allies being vocal and visible for the first time. So people who, um, when it was it was really unsure about how the vote was going to go, whether it was yes or no, the the allies who stood up and said we're we're for marriage equality, mm. um, you know, regardless of that, you know, regardless of what happens with this result. But but what I'll also say is my experience is is that when I speak to mainstream, you know, um, cisgender heterosexual people, you know, and others, is that. It's almost as if that that they say you've got marriage equality, so basically that must be it. Mm. You know, so things must be fine now, and so they kind of go, we've kind of put all of our eggs into that basket, so therefore we can look for something else because there's so much going on in the world. And and what I do know is that that's not the case. Um, yeah. we, we we know that you know it's been well documented about how it it impacted on trans and gender diverse young people, for example. Um, but it's not just that. I mean, homophobia is still happening to this day. You know, um, you know, biophobia, like all these things are happening to this day, and so, so, um, um, are things uh, are things um, better? Um, I think that you know, um, if you didn't include um, natural disasters, bushfires, and COVID, mm-hmm. um, I think there were still people who were saying that they were feeling like they were getting back on their feet after the postal survey, and it took a couple of years. Yeah. Um, but also, people were getting up on their feet because they, they they were talking about how they were getting ready for the religious freedoms debate yeah. as well. Okay. So it was it was people kind of felt like they were exhausted, but they that and fatigued, but they didn't get a chance to kind of um, steal themselves for this next debate. So um, I um I've got I've got great hope about um what we've seen in terms of people being able to tell their stories and rally around and lobby and advocate. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm just really really nervous about the toll that that might take on a on a community that's already said we've been just impacted in ways that we shouldn't have because yeah. of the postal survey. So yeah. you know, fingers crossed, I guess. Yeah, I guess that brings me to my next question: Is how do you feel about that religious discrimination bill? What are your thoughts on that? I'm really nervous about um, the impact that that's going to take, and because we know that that um, the the um, conservative forces who are all for these um, uh, religious exemptions that basically allow people to discriminate, uh, we know that sometimes they can target people, and I'm nervous about who they'll target, mm. um, particularly if that's trans and gender diverse young people again. But just I think um, you know anybody in the in the LGBTIQ community. Um, where I'm hopeful is that there are a whole bunch of people who are really pissed off with it, um, who I didn't expect. So you know, nurses and doctors are saying, you know, we don't want extra. You know, our, our job is hard enough as it is. We've got people doing great jobs. They don't need. Um, another layer of complication and they certainly don't need um, this um, extra extra ability to discriminate because as doctors and nurses um, we're all for universal health care so mm-hmm. it's it's actually there's a whole bunch of allies who are coming forward and saying this isn't just about LGBTIQ stuff this is mm-hmm. this is a lot broader that's where I, that's where I have hope 
Yeah. Um, but I don't. I, but again, I, I, I just say I'll, I'd be wary because I know that we will, we will, it will, it will undoubtedly um, impact on people's health and well-being. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm always concerned about losing people as a result of that. So, um, I, I hope that it's a, it's a long way off, and maybe it gets um, uh, somehow lost or chopped up or um, forgotten about yeah. <laughs> in the, in, a, yeah. in, a, in amongst um, bushfire recovery and also no. um, in uh, COVID nineteen. So, in terms of your experience within the LGBT plus community, um, I think you've touched on this before, but are you part of any social groups that you do yourself? You know, say for instance, someone else might want to uh, look into if they're you know going through a tough time. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so um, um, look, I, I was I was um, lucky enough, as I as I said previously, to be hanging out with a bunch of incredible lesbians in Geelong, and and then slowly built up my my network of of gay friends, and then you know from that um, you know BTIQ kind of people. Mm-hmm. Um, I I um I uh, started up gay tennis, and and gay tennis certainly led me to play mainstream tennis, and it really brought me kind of into um, sport. Was a place that was pretty scary for me um i think i kind of you know talked about how school um high school was really difficult and hanging out with groups of young men so um playing gay tennis gave me the confidence to go into and play mainstream tennis but after that look i'll be honest is that um most of my life is hanging out with lgbtiq people and it's often professional and work um so the thought of the thought of i'm lucky enough to have um you know these great connections and experiences and a wide array of, of LGBTQ people that I know. So in my downtime, you know, I, I think you, you, you've told me in the past that you're an introvert. I'm an introvert. So, yeah. so if anything, um, I just, um, I, I, I've had enough, I've had enough of people and I kind of go and spend time with myself, if that makes sense. Yeah, um, sure. But, but what, I, what I will say is that, that the vast majority of my friends I've met through tennis um, gay tennis in particular, and um, and also through my LGBTIQ work. So I've been lucky. Now, not everybody has that. I, I think that if I wasn't doing my LGBTIQ work, I absolutely would want to be um, getting involved with groups. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I think what I would always recommend to people is to to think about um, a couple of things. One is to one is to always give Q Life um, uh, a buzz, um, okay. or if you're a younger person, someone like um, minus eighteen, or go to the minus eight website mm-hmm. um, word minus one eight double go you um, and, and and just basically have a chat to them to say how you're going because it, you don't have to ring or contact these services if something's wrong. You can just ring up and have a chat and kind of, you know, um, find out a bit, little bit more about them but also find out a little bit more about yourself. But if, if I was recommending anything to anyone, I would say, you know, have a look at some websites, give QLife a call. Why not? Why not um, uh, go and volunteer? So mm-hmm. I would encourage people to go and volunteer at LGBTIQ organisations. Okay. Um, there are amazing people who are working in these spaces. Um, in every state and territory, there is some kind of entity or group. Um, the other thing I'll say is that one of the things that I find that that um, in my rural and uh, regional um, uh, work is that those groups that are LGBTIQ inclusive, mm-hmm. so that is it's not just, you know, there, there's a group for gays, there's a group for lesbians, there's a group for trans and gender diverse, yeah. et cetera, yeah. et cetera. The groups that thrive tend to be those ones that are inclusive across the alphabet sure. and they invite in allies and they, they they come together and make a really, really safe LGBTIQ inclusive space. 
Um, it doesn't have to be anything special. Um, those are the groups that I see thriving mm-hmm. and where people give, um, you know, good feedback. And um, if you can find those safe spaces wherever they might be. But, yeah, again, I would go QLife and um, volunteer. Okay. Yeah. Um, do you have anything else that you'd like to say or any advice or tips to maybe people that are going through a tough time? Is there anything you'd like to say to them before you sign off? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I would. I would. Um, so so in all of my conversations with LGBTIQ people around, um, around Australia, I, I've always asked them what makes a difference. And one of the themes that comes through is that they'll say that um, it's inevitable that every every single one of us, me, you, everybody I know, um, it's inevitable that we'll, fa- we'll face things like homophobia, biophobia, intersex phobia, transphobia. But the difference is, is how we manage and handle it. And what people will say to me around the country, regardless of where they live, whether it's the big smoke or a country town, they'll say, um, if I've got a bunch of people around me who care about me and support me and they've got my back, it just makes all of that so much easier. Mm. So one of the things that I, I teach when I'm working with um, health professionals and educators across the country is something called the Magic Five. So over time, you don't have to have the Magic Five ready to go, but over time, if you can find four or five people in your life who are supportive, um, you know, and, and take your time to build that, five people who you can trust who are supportive of you, who will, you know, basically remind you that you're you're not the problem. It's the person who's being homophobic, transphobic, intersex phobic, or biphobic. Mm-hmm. Um, they're the problem. Um, that makes a huge difference to people's mental health and well-being. So what I'll say is that right off the bat, um, Q Life is one of those. You know, okay. you've started off your magic five, but to think about. Who are the other people in your life who you can share who and what you are? And basically they can remind you that you're a, you're a, you're a decent human being, mm. um, you know, give you a bear hug um, um, if, if, if we're not in social, physical distance times, mm. um, have a cup of tea with mm. you, um, call you, Skype you, Zoom you, whatever that might be. Yep. Um, get your magic five together over time, take your time, um, but just build that and people say that, that when they've got those people around them, they pretty much think that they can take on the world and that life is a lot better. So, again, um, I, I just encourage people to reach out. Um, if people are, are in regional, rural and remote places and they, they doubt that there's possibilities within their country town, um, always feel free to contact Niche. So niche.org.au, mm-hmm. um, contact me. Um, we can have a cuppa at least over the phone yep. or Zoom or, or Skype or something like that at the moment. But I would love to hear about what's going on in your part of Australia. And if I can be of an assistance and my charity can be of assistance to come out and help, yep. um, would absolutely love that too. Yeah, definitely. And if people want to get in touch with you or find you or, you know, find you on social media, where can they do that? Um, so I'm, I'm, I, I think my, my last name is pretty unique. Um, Daniel <laughs> Whithouse, W-I-T-T-H-A-U-S on uh, Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Um, as I said, go to niche.org.au and you'll get my email and uh, my contact details. Um, please reach out. Don't be shy. Um, I might look a bit scary, my mum says, but I'm, I'm, I, I hope that I'm approachable. Yeah, well, you're a pretty friendly guy for your size and stature, so I'm sure people will be drawn to you. So uh, thanks once again for joining the chat and coming on my podcast. I know you're very busy. Um, I'll let you know when it's available to listen, and thanks once again. Uh, it's my pleasure. Thanks so much for reaching out. Yeah, no worries. So talk to you later. Okay, bye-bye. Right, bye. And that was Daniel Wheatehouse. I hope you enjoy getting to know him and what he does a little bit more. He is the author of Beyond Priscilla. And if you want, you can follow him directly on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Search Daniel Wheatehouse and you should be able to find him. And while you're there, 
You can follow me on Instagram and Facebook at Speak Up Please Podcast. And if you would like to do some quarantine listening, you can do so at my website, search speakupleasepodcast.podbean.com and you can listen to all the episodes I've got so far. So thank you for listening and I'll see you soon. Thank you.